Thank you for listening to Trinity South Coast's sermon podcast. The live recording of this sermon was not captured. Uh, This recording was done at a later date. Romans 6 verses 1 to 11. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I remember as a kid being fascinated with the character of Popeye. You probably know Popeye, uh, the the muscled sailor man who got his power from spinach. Uh, The thing about Popeye is that he had this catchphrase that he'd pull out whenever he was frustrated or he didn't know what to do or he felt inadequate. It was in his theme song, if you know it. I'm not very good at the voice, (laughs) but I'll give it a shot. Uh, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. No, I'm not going to give it a shot. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. I am what I am. I am what I am. Uh, There's something really great and genuine about this little phrase that Popeye pulled out. He knew who he was. He was was a simple, seafaring, olive oil-loving sailor man, and he wouldn't pretend to be someone different. Um, but uh, a pastor and author, John Ortberg, uh, he reflects on this catchphrase of Popeye. Uh, and Ortberg says that the, uh, uh, even though uh, he, there's something really great and genuine about it, he, he says he always thought that there was a note of sadness in Popeye's expression. It was generally offered as an explanation of his shortcomings. It doesn't anticipate much growth or change. It doesn't leave him much a shot at getting to be what he yam not. Don't get your hopes up, he seemed to say. Don't expect too much. I am what I am. And, he would add in his bleakest moments, that's all that I am. That's all that I am. Ortberg makes the connection that we've all said those words, really, in one way or another. I am what I am. Don't get your hopes up. Don't expect much change. I am what I am, and that's all that I am. Uh, this way of thinking is one that we cannot share in, but it, it seems to me has a particular edge to it when we're thinking about the Christian life, living as a Christian. We've spent the last few months here at Trinity South Coast reading through the first five chapters of Romans. 
And we've really soared, haven't we, through uh, these great theological heights. But the question remains for us, uh, how does everything we've seen up to this point, how do the incredible things that God has done through Jesus to save sinful people, how does that all impact on my day-to-day life? Does it have any impact at all? Should we expect any change in the Christian life? Or is being a Christian about trusting Jesus to save us, and then getting on with life the same as before, just as critical, just as lustful, just as selfish and proud, just as insecure, just as fragile and brittle, just as hard and calloused. I am what I am, and that's all that I am. Well, friends, it's this precise issue that Paul turns to in Romans 6, and he's going to spend the next uh, few chapters on it. Uh, If you have your Bibles open, that that will really help you as we journey through this incredible passage. He he opens up this whole question in in verse 1 of chapter 6. You can read it there in verse 1. Paul says, having gone through the first five chapters and all the great things that he's, he's brought out for us, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? See what he's saying there? He's he's getting at this question of, does the gospel lead to any real, noticeable, tangible change in my life? Uh, Actually, he goes even further than that, if you noticed it. Uh, Last week, we saw Paul zoom right out to the big picture of Adam and Christ, these two representative heads of two different humanities, two different people. He finished the chapter last week with this great claim that where sin increased... Uh, Sin increased in Adam, grace increased all the more in Christ, so that grace might reign. And so Paul imagines this kind of uh, person asking this question that kind of flows out of that, this logical question coming out of all that. If sin makes grace increase, well, shouldn't we just keep sinning all the more? Uh, Paul has been at pains to demonstrate, hasn't he, that we do all sin. We do all all sin in chapter 1. Right back in chapter 1, he exposed our idolatry, our our turning away from God to worship created things uh, that leads to all kinds of other outworkings of that deep sin in our heart, to sexual immorality, to greed, to envy, uh, to murder, deceit, gossip, the list went on. Uh, but not only that, we saw in chapter 2, the, uh, as he Paul goes on, we saw... Uh, that religious people he kind of has in his sights, those who think they're better than everyone else, are actually all in the same boat. In chapter 3, verse 9, Paul writes that everyone is under the power of sin. There was no one righteous, not even one. But then, of course, we, as we read through, we saw that wonderful gospel message that Paul, that has captivated Paul and he's written about, Uh, about this righteousness that comes from outside of us, a righteousness that we don't work for, but that's given to us as a gift, the righteousness that comes through faith, faith not in our own works, but through trusting what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And if this is the central reality of our lives, not what we do, but what God has done for us, if that's what really counts... Well, you can see how this question comes up, right? If that's what really counts, not what we do, but what God has done, well, does that mean that what we do doesn't matter? Does it mean that what we do doesn't matter? Well, 
Now, the next couple of chapters, or the next few chapters from chapters 6 to 8, kind of turn to address this whole question. Uh, if the first five chapters that we've looked at talks about what God has done for us in the gospel, what um, in theological speak you might call justification, this idea of how we have been justified, made right through what God has done for us. Uh, Paul, he turns in, in the next few chapters, looks at what God does in us through the gospel, uh, what you might call sanctification, this ongoing transformation of the gospel in our lives. And he opens up here with this question, Does, uh, shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? There's a few answers we could give to that. Um, the first answer is the one that Paul kind of dismisses straight away, the, the answer that says, yes, of course, sin away, you know, dive right in. Uh, there's not too many people that you'd probably hear give that version of the uh, of this answer. Uh, but there is, I think, a more subtle version that we can fall into. Uh, not kind of this outright saying yes to sin, but uh, uh, maybe a more subtle version of this that doesn't really care too much about sin, that kind of uh, doesn't really give it its full weight. We can excuse sinful or even just unhelpful behaviours uh, we know that it's not good, <laughs> but uh, we're not legalists, right? <laughs> we're saved by grace. You get this this picture of uh, a, one possible kind of more subtle version of maybe what Paul has in his sights here. Well, there's something right about that response, isn't there? That we're not to be legalists. We're not moralists. There is a moralist answer to this question of whether we go on sinning kind of at the other end of the spectrum, the, the moralist says, of course not. And the response they give is, the, what, you should, what you should do instead is just try harder. Just stop it. It's as if there's a kind of continuum of your life, right? And be, before you're a Christian, uh, it's all grace and it's all good news, a free gift of God. But once you're in, once you're a Christian, everything changes, right? Grace was good for you back then, but now you've just got to harden up. Pull yourself up and get to work. Well, friends, this is a struggle for us, I think, especially uh, especially for those of us in the Protestant tradition here at, here at church. We kind of sit in this tradition. We rightly value and highlight and cling to God's grace. We're not saved. We're not saved by doing works of penance or saying the right prayers we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But if that's true, if that's true, what do we have to say about sin in the Christian life? About change in the Christian life? Should we expect it? How does the glorious gospel of grace bring any real, lasting, tangible change in my life? That's what the gospel should do. That, that's what Paul longs to see in the Roman Christians. You, know, you kind of get that through his letter right at the start of chapter 1 and right at the end, he, in the last chapter, chapter 16, he frames his whole letter with this really interesting, important phrase that he says he, he's, uh, that, um, he's appointed an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. This idea of the obedience of faith, this really driving central thing uh, in Paul's ministry. 
There's some discussion about what this phrase means, the, the obedience of faith, but as far as I can tell, though, it at least means actual changed lives that come about through faith in Christ. So Paul expects this, to, he longs to see this real change. But the question is, how does it happen? How does, how does that happen? And this passage in chapter 6, this chapter really, uh, is at the heart of this question. We can't go on sinning. But the answer is not just to go to the other end of the spectrum and, and, and simply say, stop it, just try harder. All right? Paul's answer goes far deeper than that. He wants to get right to the heart of who we are. Well, it's another really um, kind of dense passage. Uh, it's a complex passage, and it kind of goes over the same issues from different angles as you read through it. And, and uh, we can't go into all the details of it here, but if you have your outline there, you'll see that Paul's basically making three points. Uh, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No, he says, not at all. And the logic behind Paul's reason, it's not the kind of order he goes through necessarily in this little passage, but the logical order behind it he gives is uh, three things. Um, firstly, the reason is that we are united to Christ. We're united to Christ. Secondly, we therefore share in his death to sin. And thirdly, we share in his life towards God. So if you have the passage there, uh, it would be really helpful as we kind of uh, look through uh, these three things and draw some threads together about the incredible difference it makes that this is true for us. Uh, we're united to Christ, Paul says. We we are united to Christ. So chapter 5 is in the background here. If you were listening last week, um, uh, Jesus comes as the head of a new humanity, a new humanity that answers the old humanity under Adam. Under Adam, we were made sinners and we faced condemnation. Under Christ, we are justified, made righteous. We receive life in his kingdom of grace. We enter this new Jesus humanity. Uh, if you uh, read through last week's passage in, in verse 17 of chapter 5, we enter into this new reality, this new humanity. Uh, you can see it there in verse 17. By receiving... Uh, by receiving God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness. You see what Paul's saying there? In other words, we enter into this new reality through faith, through uh, receiving and trusting in what Jesus has done to give us his righteousness. You see what this is saying, friends? That faith doesn't just make us legally righteous. It does that. It, But it's not just a kind of objective declaration it is that wonderfully but when we trust jesus uh, something change about us changes you know in jesus words if we looked at this uh, when we um, started going through john's gospel at the end of last year uh, in jesus words we're born again we enter into a new existence in adam we're united to him instead of Adam, a new existence in Jesus, rather. We, we united to him instead of Adam. And this whole idea of being united to Christ, being in Christ, is critical, it's central for Paul, uh, particularly as he thinks about what it means to live the Christian life, what it means. 
Uh, you can look through there as he goes through this passage. He uses this imagery of baptism to describe this. Uh, in verses 3 and 4 there, we were baptized into Christ Jesus, and baptized into his death. Uh, it's not saying that baptism brings about our union with Christ. That's an overreading. Uh, but our baptism is the great sign of our union with Christ, being buried with him and being raised to new life again with him. And he goes on in verse 5 to talk about how we are united with him. It's that little word united. Uh, it can also be used in a kind of botanical sense to talk about uh, grafting. If you're kind of uh, a bit of a gardener, you probably know what that looks like. If you graft one uh, um, one plant onto another, it kind of it, it, it has this sense of being united in a real organic way to Christ. Now, last week we saw how being in Adam was like a Christmas tree, if you remember that, uh, about how being Adam was, we talked about how that you can look impressive on the outside, a Christmas tree does that, it looks beautiful, you can dress it up, but ultimately a Christmas tree is, even though it might look alive, it's cut off, isn't it? It's cut off from its life source, it's dead. It's. Uh, but now, Paul says, through faith in Christ we're united to him, we're, we're, we're organically grafted back into the living tree uh, to our eternal life source, united to Christ. And the key thing about all of this, being united to Christ, is Paul wants to say what's true of him, what's true of him is now true of us. We're united to Christ and so we share in his death to sin. You see that in verse 2, he straight away answers this this question about sinning. He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Okay, we're united to Christ. That's Paul's gospel answer to this question. And we therefore, we share in his death to sin. But what does that mean? What, is this, what does it mean to, to die to sin in Christ? It, it doesn't. There's a few things it doesn't mean. Um, it 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 can't mean that we're no longer tempted to sin. That we don't experience any kind of temptation to sin. Uh, if that were true, we'd have to be honest and say that there's none of us are actually Christians. None of us are dead to sin in this sense. Uh, it doesn't mean. In fact, we're we're told even Jesus was tempted. It can't mean that you you don't you're no longer tempted. What? Uh, it also doesn't mean we're still tempted, but we reach a state of being sinless, of being perfect. Uh, dying to sin under this kind of way of reading it uh, means we might experience temptation, but we always say no, we we reach this state of being sinless. And, and some people have actually thought this through history, this um, uh, idea of being of sinless perfectionism, of reaching a state of total uh, sinlessness. Uh, the story is told of a, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. Um, not sure. I can't find an accurate source for it. I hope it's true because it's such a great story. Uh, it might be slightly apocryphal, but Spurgeon apparently, uh, the story is told about he he had this uh, dinner with a man and uh, this guy he was having dinner with was talking about this idea of him being uh, reaching this state of sinlessness. He was, he was so thankful to God that he'd 
reached this state. Um, he, he didn't sin anymore. He experienced temptation, but he always he was so holy he never gave in. At which point, apparently, the story goes, uh, Spurgeon took a jug of cold water and poured it all over him. And, and this torrent of uh, verbal abuse flowed out of his mouth. Uh, and Spurgeon looked at him and replied, That old man that you said was dead to sin, it turns out he was just sleeping and needed waking up. Uh, it, no, this, it doesn't mean this idea of being totally sinless, never never sinning. Uh, it also, though, doesn't mean... It, it, it's not saying that this is something that we need to do. It's not. He's not giving an instruction here. He's not saying you're united to Christ and so die to sin. It's, it's a past thing. You notice that we have died. It's not something we need to do. It has happened. So what, what, does, it, what does it mean to, to die to sin? Well, uh, others might be able to uh, put it better, but here's, what, uh, yeah, here's my shot at trying to gather together these things. Uh, to die to sin, I, th- I think what Paul's saying here is to die to sin as the controlling reality in your life. To die to the realm of sin, the, the kingdom over which sin has authority. You see this down in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles open there. Uh, verse 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Uh, it's kind of like when we're in Adam, we're living in a prison, right? Uh, we're we're uh, trapped in a prison under sin's power in, in his domain. We're, we're trapped in this prison and... and even if we make a break for it every now and again, even if we kind of uh, make a break out of this prison, sin still drags us back because it, it has a right to, actually. We, the thing about uh, being in sin's prison is that we, we rightly belong in that, in that prison. The only way out, the only way out is to pay the penalty, to do the time, to pay the price for our sin. And what is the price? Well, we find later in this chapter, we'll get to this next week, but Paul says in that famous verse, uh, the wages of sin is death. The only way out of this prison is to die. And when we see that, when we see that the only way out is to die, that it, you can start to see why it's such good news what Paul's saying about our being united to Christ. When we trust in Jesus, God decides to count Jesus' death as ours, to accept his life in our place. Our old life dies, is justified, is made right with God, and we're raised to new life outside the prison walls. And you see what that it doesn't mean we're free from sin's power to tempt us. Sin can still call to us from inside, from inside the prison. But it has no more power over us to condemn us, to kill us. Our sentence has been completed in Christ. 
sin can't look at us and, and threaten to kill us because we've already died. We've died to sin's power in Christ. It can't kill us anymore. We're no longer its slaves. We don't belong in its realm, in its prison, in its kingdom. Even if we continue in the old habits that we learnt while we were in there, even if we still listen to its call through the prison bars and we still fall back into sinful ways, we don't belong there. We have a new identity, a new life in Christ. We're united to Christ and we share in his death to sin. But Paul goes on and says, we also share in his resurrection to new life. We share in his new life to God. Um, typically, typically uh, people like me, evangelicals, uh, evangelical Christians, we rightly, I think, focus on Jesus' death for us and everything it achieves. And the payment for our sin, the removal of our guilt. But did you notice here in chapter 6 how for Paul that kind of negative reality, sin's power and penalty being wiped away, did you notice how that isn't replaced by nothing? It's not like we're brought out of the prison to, to, to nothing. It's replaced by a far more wonderful, positive reality. In Christ we aren't just dead to sin... We are that wonderfully. But Paul goes on, we are alive to God. We share in his death and his resurrection life. Verse 4, he writes this, if you can see it there. Verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then down in verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And when we see this, when we see not only that we're dead to sin, but we are alive to God. We share in Jesus' new resurrected life with God. You can start to see just how out of place sin is in the Christian life. You still sin. And until the Lord returns, you will continue to sin. But whenever you do, it's can you see how... It's going against who you are. You're not alive to sin anymore. You are alive to God. Uh, another great preacher, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, tells the, he told the story of, in connection to all this, the story of slaves in America set free after the Civil War. Uh, all, the, all the slaves had been given their freedom, declared to be free, and not only that, they were actually free. They'd given, they were given, a, they had a real status of being free in reality. But hundreds and thousands of times afterwards, they didn't realize it. And when they saw their old master coming near them, they began to quake and tremble and wonder whether they were going to be sold again. 
Lloyd Jones goes on after this kind of really striking illustration. Uh, he says, Whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here through his word that if we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. And if I fall into sin, as I do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. I do not realize who I am. And so we get to verse 11. Verse 11. This incredible little verse tucked away in the middle of this chapter. It's kind of like a hinge in this chapter. Uh, I think it's actually a hinge in the whole book of Romans. It's short and it's easy to pass over, but it's one of the most important and powerful and precious little sentences I think ever written. Uh, Paul is going to go on next week to talk in really striking terms about how our new identity in Christ leads to an active effort to offer ourselves to God. But we can't jump over verse 11. Verse 11, this kind of hinge verse, it gathers up everything that's come before it and it gives the framework for everything Paul's going to go on and say. It's, it's the first time, we mentioned this a few weeks ago, it's, this is, Paul doesn't give any instruction in his in his letter, right up to this point. It's, this is the first time Paul says uh, what to do. It gives some sort of instruction to the people he's writing to. And just incidentally, that's a really good um, habit to get into, if you're particularly in the New Testament letters. If you want to kind of get some sense of what's at the heart of that letter, uh, just find figure out where the first time the, the author of the letter, the writer, gives an instruction, says something to do. And that often will give you a really good um, indication of what they're really on about, what's what's driving them. Anyway, that's sort of on the by the by. Uh, but if but what, this is the first time he gives this instruction, and uh, Paul's basically saying here, if everything, if everything he's been saying is true, these last few chapters that we've looked at, this incredible uh, reality of the gospel, if if everything is true that he's been saying about Jesus and what God has done. What is our right response to that? What should we do? We know we shouldn't go on sinning. But what's the alternative? Well, Paul says, the alternative is not to just try harder. It's not to ignore your sin. He says... By God's grace, you have been united to Christ through faith. You've been united to his death and his resurrection. And and Paul writes in verse 11, In the same way as you have been united to Christ, Paul says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves. This is the first and one of the most important commands in the Christian life for Paul. 
call it there on the outline, the prime directive, the this kind of main outworking of the gospel. If all of this has been done for you, and if all of this doesn't just mean you've got a new legal status, but a new real core identity, a new family united to Christ, dead to sin, alive to God, then your first and primary response is to count these things as being true of yourself. And you know, see, can you see what it's not saying here? It's not saying really, 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 really believe hard that it is true and it'll come true. You know, kind of like the, if you build it, they will come spirituality. If you believe it hard enough, it'll happen. Now, that's not what it's saying. Everything Paul said up to this point has made the really strong and clear and simple claim that it has already happened in Christ. Nothing you can do will make it happen because it is true. God declares it to be true. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God in Christ. So count it as true. Reckon it as true. Continually remember, consciously remind yourself over and over again every single day of your life about who you are in Christ Jesus. You are dead to sin and you are alive to God. So, friends, how does this help us? How does this help us uh, with our, all of our thinking and our struggles with change in the Christian life? How does how can this help you in your struggle for sexual purity? Your in your habitual critical spirit, in your impatience and anger, in your insecurity and fear, in whatever sins are buried deep in your heart. How can the gospel bring about real, deep transformation in your life? It's not a simple solution, I think. There's no kind of silver bullet that you'll wake up magically the next day. Uh, The old prison is always in sight and it always calls to us and will do so until Jesus returns and all that's evil will be brought to nothing we will keep falling back into our old ways of life. But can you see how Paul's answer is so different to the ones that we might come up with? He's no Popeye, right? I am what I am and that's all that I am. No, he expects the gospel to really change us. But he's not at the other end of the spectrum. He's not just interested in external change, the change of a a moralist, simply changing behaviours driven by rules. That, uh, the the kind of change that either drives you to despair because you don't match up to your rules, or what's actually much worse in the end, that will make you proud because you do match up to your rules. No. No, Paul's interested in deep gospel identity, heart change. So who am I? Last week we finished with this question, uh, with the great big picture of either being in Adam's family or in Christ's family. This week we kind of drill right down deeper and further. If I'm in Christ's family, I share in all that he has done. So who am I?
Am I my pride? Am I my insecurity? Am I my selfish, lustful self? Am I a slave to my sin? No, that's not who I am. I am what Christ is. Really, forever. This is the deepest and truest truth about me, about my identity. I am what Christ is. I am dead to sin. And I am alive to God, wonderfully brought into his family by grace. And realizing this, counting it as true, and trusting yourself to it, is the first and ongoing response for a Christian person. That's the start and ongoing uh, response. That's the start and the continual thing of really growing in God's grace, of being transformed by the gospel, to continually remember and reckon on what has been done for me and to me and in me and all that that means. That's something that we need to help each other to do. It'd be great to keep thinking through as a community, as a church family, ways in which we can help each other to do that, to continually count ourselves as being dead to sin and alive to God. That's something that we need God's Spirit to do among us too. So let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious and wonderful reality of the Gospel. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you have made us to be dead to sin and alive to you. Father, give us all that we need to continually remember that as, a, as the, the deepest reality of our lives. To count ourselves as being really dead to sin and alive to you. And Lord, may that have a continual and powerful transforming effect in our lives so that we might live for the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.